The following sermon is from Redemption Bible Church of New Braunfels, where we are proclaiming the authority of God's Word without apology, in order to fulfill the Great Commission in the spirit of the Great Commandment. Uh, Turn in your copy of God's Word, uh, now that you have your Bibles, to Colossians 4, uh, 2-6. That's where we'll be this morning. And uh, like I just referenced a second ago, we're nearing the end of our study here in Colossians. And our focus in this book that the Spirit has intended for us on the greatness of Christ. And, you know, week after week, uh, over the months that we've been in this book, we have passage after passage been saying continually, like uh, we were told in Psalm 70, that God is great and we are poor and needy. Well, that's the anthem of Psalm 70 in our ministry year this year. We've seen that uh, in the book of Colossians as well. And the practical instructions in the book of Colossians here uh, really closes on the same note. God is great, and we are poor and needy. It closes on this, uh, on this idea of our devotion, of being devoted to communicating the greatness of Christ. And so as we begin this morning, let me just ask this question. If uh, you were to uh, self-assess, what would you say that you are devoted to? Maybe you picture yourself in a job interview or you're getting to know a new friend and they ask you this question, to whom are you devoted? Who might you say? You might say if you're married, your spouse, your family, your kids, your work, your, a worthy cause you're devoted to. Maybe your pets, I'm devoted to my dog, my cat. Maybe a sports team or a college, right? Like, what do we say around here? Let me ask this, in answer to that question, would you say that you're devoted to the gospel? The good news that we love about Christ. The good news that turned us from enemies of God to friends of God. The gospel that shapes how we uh, expect things in our life. That shapes our belief. That guides our relationship. That transforms how we act and behave. And is to be the center of our marriages and our families and our workplace. It's the gospel. But what does a gospel-devoted life look like? Well, it's pretty simple, actually. You see, we talk about the things that we love. We are devoted to things, and then we talk about them because we love them. And so, does the gospel then, let me ask this last question, does the gospel then season our prayers and our speech with other people? As we answer these questions, let's come to the text, and I want to read it for you, and I think you'll see what it looks like then as we read these verses. Follow along in your copy, Colossians 4, 2 through 6, say this, Continue steadfastly in prayer, being watchful in it with thanksgiving. At the same time, pray also for us, that God may open to us a door for the word to declare the mystery of Christ on account of which I am in prison that I may make it clear, which is how I ought to speak. Walk in wisdom toward outsiders, making the best use of the time. Let your speech always be gracious, seasoned with salt, so that you may know how you ought to answer each person. And this is God's word for God's people. Now, even in the reading of this text, notice two, well, three of our pillars, two very explicitly, and one maybe implicitly here in the text. Uh, Our pillars here that if you've been around redemption, you know we have four of them. If you're new with us today, good morning and welcome, by the way. Uh, You may 
have noticed them on the wall as you were walking in and got your coffee there, but these pillars of our unceasing prayer. By implication here, unapologetic preaching as he refers to the declaring of the mystery of Christ and an open door for the word and our pillar of unafraid witness. Now what's the fourth one, y'all? This is a quiz. You ready for a quiz on this Sunday morning? What's our fourth pillar? Unashamed. Shout it out. Somebody knows it. Hey, get that guy a prize, right? Good job, Micah. Unashamed worship. These are our pillars, our biblical commitments of our church, and not just our church, really, every Great Commission collective church and every church, whether they articulate it this way or not, but our biblical commitments to glorifying God and making disciples. For when we devote ourselves to these pillars in the Bible of praying and preaching and worshiping and, and sharing the gospel, these things uh, are where God promises to work through. This is where ministry and transformation then happens. And so we are committed to them as a church. Why? Because God commands them. But also this is where that lasting change, that true heart transformation, where our sanctification happens as we employ these means that He has given to us, as we are devoted, as we are dependent upon Him for these things. And they're so basic. You're like, yeah, well, that's pretty obvious. And you're right, it is so basic. And it's to these things that Paul brings us back to, or brings the Colossians and therefore us back to, at the close of this letter, as really the response to the greatness of God. See, as we think about it, we uh, know who God is. We're, we, we're convinced that He is sovereign, that He is great, that He is good, He is above all. And what does that then provoke in us to... Hopefully a response to know Him and for others to know Him, to commune with Him, to worship Him because He is who He is. And so at the bottom of this text then this morning, the foundation of it, our nail this morning is this, write it down in your notes, is that a life devoted to Christ communicates the greatness of Christ. Let me say that again. A life devoted to Christ communicates the greatness of of Christ. What are we devoted to? How do we know if we are devoted to it is if our life is communicating the greatness of Christ. And he brings it out really in two ways of how we show it in our prayers. As we commit ourselves to unceasing prayer and praying for fellow believers, that vertical communication. Now, we are praying and praying for one another and how we communicate non-verbally and verbally with unbelievers. That horizontal communication in our life amongst those who don't yet believe. And so we know the priority of prayer and, and sharing the gospel, don't we? Maybe that's a, a news to you this morning. Maybe it's not. We know that this is a priority for us. And, and I think we truly believe in the power of God through our prayers, through our sharing the gospel, that He is doing a good work through them in Different than our timing, different than maybe how we would want it all to work out, but we believe in the power of God through it. And so my hope for us, even as we come back to the basics in this, is that we put it to practice so that it becomes more natural, more reflexive for us. Right? That we will be maturing in these pillars. We will be maturing in these basics so that then our discipline in it becomes reflexive. We are maturing in Christ. Dr. Easley, the president of Moody at the time I was there, used to say this all the time. He would say maturity is when, or spiritual maturity is when, a discipline becomes reflex. 
Spiritual maturity is when discipline becomes reflex. And so, what do we do? We just put it into practice. We continue to, uh, to uh, put these things into use in our life. And we begin to... And just, you know, it's like when we get squeezed then in life, we're so saturated with the gospel, we're so saturated with the greatness of God that when we're squeezed, these are the things that comes out. And so Paul assumes this is the case. He assumes here as he gets to the end that they've been saturated with the truths of the previous chapters here of the greatness of Christ and how we're then to live. And so it then overflows from their lips in this unceasing prayer. And so the points today are pretty straightforward for us. They're simple, they're clear, and hopefully they are themselves urgent. And so a life committed to Christ, or devoted to Christ, communicates the greatness of Christ. And so what does that look like? Well, devote yourself to unceasing prayer. To devote yourself to unceasing prayer. Write that down. It's our first point. It's what we see in the first few verses of our text. He opens the letter, Paul writing to the church there in Colossae, the believers. He opens the letter, remember in chapter 1, praying for them telling about how he thanks God. And then he doesn't just say, hey, I've prayed for you, but what does Paul do in chapter 1? If you remember way back several months ago, what does he do? He actually writes out his prayer for them. I'm, now he doesn't just say, I've prayed for you, but he says, this is what I have prayed for you. And he tells them to continue steadfastly in praying this way because they were already praying, but to continue praying like he told them in those prayers that God delights to Those prayers of God, fill me, fill them with a a knowledge that leads to godly conduct. Cause them to bear fruit in every good work. Increase their knowledge of you. Give them the strength to keep going in faithfulness. Give them, uh, God, we give you thanks for saving them. He opens the letter and now he closes it, urging them, charging them to be persistent prayers. Look what it says in the first few verses of verse 2 the first few words, rather, of verse 2. Chapter 4, verse 2, he says, Continue steadfastly, or be devoted in prayer. Now, is this the first time that we encounter this charge in the Scriptures? No, it's actually something that's repeated. This is to be characteristic of uh, a friend of Christ. Someone who is devoted to following Christ is someone who is persistent in their prayers. If you think back to Luke 18, Jesus tells the story of the persistent widow. You remember that story? You can turn over there if you want. I'll read it here and you can just listen to it. Luke 18, 1 through 8, says this, And he, that's Jesus, told them a parable to the effect that they ought always to pray and not lose heart. I love that. A parable that we uh, ought always to pray and not lose heart. He says this, In a certain city there was a judge who neither feared God nor respected man. Sounds uh, very similar to our day today. There was a widow in that city who kept coming to the judge and saying, Give me justice against my adversary. For a while he refused. But afterward he said to himself, Though I neither fear God nor respect man, yet because this widow keeps bothering me, I will give her justice so that she will not beat me down by her continual coming. The Lord said, Hear what the unrighteous judge says. And will not God give justice to his elect who cry to him day and night? Will he delay long over them? I tell you, he will give justice to them speedily. Nevertheless, when the Son of Man comes, will he find faith on earth? That's Luke 18, 1 through 8. See, Jesus here is telling his disciples to be persistent, to continue on steadfastly in prayer using this 
parable of injustice, but we know our God is just. Always come through. He is good and righteous. We see this persistent praying, this unceasing prayer as characteristic in the early church. We get to the book of Acts then. In chapter 2, the disciples are, are, are coming to Christ. They're preaching the word of God. And then we're told that they are devoted to the apostles' teaching, to the fellowship, the breaking of bread, and the prayers. And then in chapter 6, as the church continues to grow, the church leadership, the apostles, are reestablish or reaffirm the priority and their devotion to praying. And as they do, ministry increases. And it seems like in Acts, that chapter after chapter, what are the believers doing? Praying. Praying while they're being persecuted. Praying while uh, they are uh, being blessed by, the, uh, uh, by God. But the whole time, the gospel is multiplying. And so here's the thing. We all want those type of acts-like results in our life, don't we? But we don't always want the devotion that accompanies it to praying in this way. A devotion to pray without ceasing and to praying a certain way that he informs them here. So the command here, a life devoted to Christ, is one that is continuing steadfastly in prayer. But look what characterizes the prayers here that God delights to answer. He says, first, be watchful, right? Continue steadfastly in prayer, being watchful. What does it mean? Be watchful, alert, awake, ready for the opportunity, uh, geared up and looking for those opportunities where people are sharing their requests, aware of the needs of the co-workers and your family and the people around you where you can say, let's pray right now for the Lord. This uh, watchfulness is an alertness in the things that we are praying of praying uh, uh, concise but uh, biblically rich, theologically sound, impactful prayers or the needs that exist, or the reasons to thank God, or whatever it might be. Some of us are just really good, myself included. We can just drone on and on and on with a bunch of Christianese nonsense, right? We get to the end, we prayed for like five or ten minutes, and it's like, what in the world did we even just say? But here, watchful, alert, but also thankful. Look at here it again. It's it's this thankfulness that has been all throughout this book as we're praying here. Uh, it uh, thankfulness in, infuses how we pray. He was thankful in chapter one for their salvation, and chapter two he says, "Walk in Him, rooted and established in Him." Right, uh, just as you were taught, abounding in thanksgiving. We're told in chapter three as we uh, uh, walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, as we're uh, putting on the things of Christ. All throughout that, it's seasoned with this thankfulness. And now we're told that our prayers as well should be seasoned with thanksgiving. See, gratitude or grateful prayers isn't just like a section on the prayer list, right? Here are the things that we need, God. Here are the things that uh, we want. Here are the things that we're confessing. Oh, and by the way, here are the things that we are thankful for. But no, gratitude should flavor all of our communication with God, whether we're lamenting or requesting or asking or confessing or praising God. Why? Because we believe in the sovereignty of God through it. That Just that very access that we have is more than we deserve, as we just sang, and it should lead to thankfulness. Now, I love this. Uh, my daughter, Gemma, uh, who uh, just standing next to me, she's 6 and 11 twelfths, if uh, you ask her. Her birthday's next month. She's learning fractions. Uh, when she prays, this type of gratitude comes out. She'll just be, we'll ask her to pray, God, thank you for the food, thank you for my friends, you, you know, thank you that daddy's eye is hurting, thank you, thank you. You're like, wait, what? Like, it's just how she's learned to pray. She's overflowing with gratitude, and uh, oh, that we would learn to pray even like that. 
Even in our suffering, even in our temptation, God, thank you for reminding me of who you are. Thank you for holding me close. Thank you that I know your love. That even when I, my, my mind said my foot slips, your steadfast love that held me up. Thank you that I know your love today. See, these are the type of prayers. This is how we pray. God delights to answer prayers like this when we are saying thank you, and specifically thank you for these gospel opportunities. Remember, where's Paul in this passage? Where's he writing from? Is a penthouse suite, top of a you know Roman mansion? It's in prison. He's in prison, and here even still he's teaching them to pray with thanksgiving. And so if watchfulness and gratitude uh, should uh, season how we pray, look what then he teaches us on what we are to pray for. It's a specific kind of prayer. He says there in verse 3 that at the same time pray also for us as you are continuing steadfastly in prayer, as your thoughts turn to pray for uh, Paul and his uh, uh, partners in ministry, his co-laborers, he prays them that God would open a door for the word. Praying for these gospel opportunities. Now again, remember where he's at. He's in prison. And so the irony here, the picture that he's painting for us is he's not asking for his prison doors to be opened. Hey, when you think of me, ask that I might get out of jail. No, he doesn't ask for his circumstances to change. He knows that he is there by the sovereignty of God because he's preaching the gospel. That's why he's in prison. He acknowledges that this is the reason why what he is asking for is not prison doors to be opened, but gospel doors to be opened where he now has the opportunity to interact with people that he might never have uh, crossed paths with in his life, but now he is here. And so he's asking God for these things. So too we must ask for these types of opportunities. Wherever you are now in your job where you may feel like it's a prison, where you may feel trapped, the way that we pray for one another is for gospel opportunities, but also this, this gospel clarity. God, open up these doors. Open up uh, uh, opportunities to speak about the gospel that I might make it clear, which is how I ought to speak. And again, we can get so convoluted we can uh, in our prayers and in how we are sharing the gospel, how we are talking about things. And here's really just, we can just keep it simple. Make it clear, but be urgent in how we are communicating it. And so what is the mystery of the gospel that he's speaking of here? What is it that should be so crystal clear in our minds? And maybe the reason why we are why we're afraid or why we're not bold is because we don't have a clear grasp of what the gospel is. It might still be a mystery. See, it's a mystery that's now been revealed. It's a mystery that has come uh, to fruition in Christ Jesus. It's, a, it's no longer something that is unclear to us, but is now clear. What is the gospel? Well, here's just five points on it. We talk about this all the time to just uh, keep us uh, real simple in the gospel. It, it just begins with this, that God is holy. There is a God out there who created all of this. And He is not like us. Why? Because who are we? We have sin. Our sin has actually separated us from this holy God. Your sin, my sin, the sin of all humans. Born into this condition. But God is holy and our sin separates us. And God knew the problem. We are poor and needy. And so he sent Christ. Who stood in our place. 
lived the perfect life that we couldn't live in order to be right with God and died the death that our sin then deserved and rose again, defeating death that we might live. And when we understand that, when we repent of the sin that has separated us and believe that Christ stood in our place, then that opens up the door for us to walk in newness of life, both here and now, changing our total outlook, changing our total obedience in this life now, but also giving us hope for eternity. See, this is the gospel that Paul now is praying for these opportunities. And it's a gospel that you've just heard, and I pray that you embrace it. Maybe this is the first time you've heard this good news, or the Lord is opening up your eyes to it. No, this is, this is something I need to repent and believe right now. You can do that even right now. God has opened your eyes, and you love this. May He rekindle our love for this in our own life and our love to communicating this so clearly to a watching world. See, we pray to these ends. Not only do we pray, God, would you make it clear in my own heart? We're praying that, God, would you make it clear in my friend's heart, in my family member's heart, as they walk through this thing in their life, as they are in prison. God, would you make the gospel be clearly communicated in our circumstances? And see, here's really the charge of these, these verses here. That as we share life with one another, as we're sharing our requests with one another, as we're uh, uh, sharing, uh, this is what's happening in my marriage, this is what's happening in my family or with these friends or these, this, my school uh, years, it comes to a close or work opportunities or whatever is going on. We are praying, God, would you open up a door, even in the midst of it, for the gospel to become more desirous for me and them or whoever is involved. See, here are the things, like we, when we really think about it, what is God's mission on this earth? What is He purposing for us to do even now? To worship Him and to make disciples, right? This is His mission here. So when we are saying, God, this is what you are already doing, align my purposes, align my life, even in the difficulties and especially in the good times, align my purposes that, we can, uh, that, that the gospel might be made clear. See, some of us are treating our prayer requests maybe more like uh, change orders, right? My God, can, uh, can we get this? Can we get the walls changed in my life? I don't like it. the circumstances that I'm in. Or can we just change the paint color here? And God's like, nope, this is a change color. Um, I'm not, we, we're not changing the circumstances because I have you here for a purpose for the gospel. I have you in this workplace. I have you in this school. I have you in this neighborhood. You're in this marriage. We have these kids. Why? To make much of Jesus Christ. So we pray this way. We embrace these things with gratitude, with watchfulness for the gospel opportunities, praying for them and planning for them as the truths of the greatness of God and our poor neediness is there. But it's not just merely praying, right? It's a praying that leads to action. A praying that leads to a changed and transformed life. See, a life that's devoted to Christ communicates the greatness of Christ. It's devoted to unceasing prayer by the pillar that we've already talked about here. We must devote ourselves also to unafraid witness. To being winsome witnesses and sharing the gospel in both how we walk and how we talk. For these two things must go together, right? 
We all have examples of hypocrisy where the walk doesn't match the talk or vice versa. But both of these form our witness. And so look at verse 5 here and how it just kind of breaks down. We should walk in wisdom toward outsiders. What does it mean to walk? Well, it's, that's the biblical metaphor of our manner of life. What is it that characterizes our life? How are we walking? We're told earlier in chapter 2, verse 6, to walk in Him, rooted and built up in Him, established in the faith, just as you were taught, abounding in thanksgiving. It's our manner of life, and we're walking wisdom. What is wisdom? How do we define that around here? It's knowing and applying what is true and right. Knowing and applying what is true and right. Just, it's different than just understanding or just knowing what is true, but it is also then applying what is true and right. And we're told to do this, to walk in wisdom, specifically in our interactions with outsiders. German Ostlanders, right? Most of us here are. Foreigners, outsiders, those uh, who are not yet believing. That's another word really just said, unbelievers, those who are outside the faith. And so we must then be winsome and not arrogant or elitist, right? So it's not like, oh, they're outsiders, we're insiders. We have like some special understanding and things like that. And that's not what he's getting at here. We must be winsome. Why? Why? Because the time is short. Making the best use of the time, understanding this, that we may not have another opportunity. Now, we don't have to beat ourselves up when we miss opportunities, but here's just the understanding and the level of urgency uh, on why we are to walk this way. A life committed to this is because we may not have another opportunity. We're to make the best use of our time. And what could be a better use than to be devoted to these gospel purposes? You know, you probably better at this than me, I'm so good at wasting time, right? Doing the things that are just inconsequential, that are just mind-numbing. We're amusing ourselves while the world is dying around us. But this is creating a level of urgency. I love how one commentator says this. Paul is urging the Colossians that they must blend wisdom with a sense of reckless urgency that exhausts every opportunity to reach unbelievers. I love this. It's, a, it's, it's wisdom with a, this urgency that is making the best use of the time. But even so, even with this urgency, we're making it clear, we're devoted to this. Does that mean we just get to like bull people over and beat them up over the head you know, with the Bible and with their sin? No, absolutely not. Absolutely not. Look at what he says. See, how we live matters. Our reputation speaks volumes. Uh, the way that we speak, how we speak, oftentimes communicates more than what we are speaking about. You know, the, the reality is unbelievers have so many reasons for not believing. Our offensiveness should not be one of them. Gospel message itself is offensive, but you know we, we can't always recover from hypocrisy, but we can live a life that unbelievers, they, they will say, you know what, I want that. They have something different. They, they were responding to things different than, than, than I do. They have a hope and a peace and a joy that is different than what I have. This, this person is authentic and real. They're purposeful. The reality is that this type of life, this type of witness, opens up more doors for gospel opportunities than, than we maybe give credit to. 
It opens up the door, the opportunities that we pray for, and then we walk through with boldness, and we then speak with this grace, graciousness and the saltiness and this content that He speaks of. And so look at how we, our walk must be one in wisdom, making the best use of time, prioritizing it. But then also look at how our talk should be as well, gracious, salty, and informed. Let your speech always, do you see that there? Always, underline that so you don't miss it, no matter what. No matter who you're speaking with, whether they're an insider or an outsider, your family, people you know well or not, this should characterize our speech with our spouse, with our kids, with our parents, with our co-workers and friends and everyone. There's no just like, well, you know what? This is just how I speak. I'm a blunt person. Get over it. There's no like, well, I just see it like I say it. There's no just, well, accept me for who I am. No, if you're a Christian... You're a friend of Christ, somebody who's been redeemed and transformed, then this gracious manner of speech, this saltiness and information should characterize how we speak. So what does it mean to speak gracious? Well, grace makes us gracious, doesn't it? It says the love of Christ makes us loving, knowing the forgiveness of Christ that enables us to forgive. But to be gracious in our speech means that we leave room. We're not insistent or aggressive or offensive or manipulative, but we're empathetic. We're kind. We're understanding. We know when to hit the delete button when we want to lash out in that comment. Or when we want to just add that little zinger to the text message. Or we want to send it when we know it's going to hurt the most. Oh, gracious speech makes us sympathetic. It opens up doors. It, is a, it means that we are approachable. This is really what he's getting at in the metaphor here of, of our speech being seasoned with salt. What does it mean to have salty speech? It means that it's tasty and attractive. It's a flavor that is added to uh, the communication or the conversation that adds meaning and value and value to the person's life. It's thoughtful and compelling. And so just think about salt for a minute. When is salt the best? Right? When it's seasoned uh, uh, appropriately, when it's enhancing the rest of the flavors in the, in the dish here, it's worse, uh, uh, you know, salt's at its worst when things are like coated in salt, right? You're just like, I'm going to just put a whole coating of salt around this thing and just chomp it. No, no. Or we just take the salt shaker and we're like... <laughs> Sometimes we just want to do that with our speech, right? We're just like, here's, let's take the, the gospel and let's just like dump the salt here. No. What do we do with our french fries? We dust them with salt. We don't dip them in salt. Maybe some of y'all do, don't you? Some of y'all just like... No, we just dust them there. It's a season. It's appropriate. There's there's like a, a fine balance that you have to come to in your season. Like things like fries. How to learn this. You know, last week some of y'all uh, really keyed on the fact that I used to drive carriages. I mentioned, uh, I, I missed an opportunity. I showed a picture. Most of y'all get that afterwards. Picture, some wanted like picture proof that I actually did that. Well, it's out there. I'll show, show you. But also, when I was 16, I worked at McDonald's for just a brief span of six, eight months, something like that. I needed a job, and they, they hired me right on the spot. 
But one of the main things that they did, they put me on the fry station. So I had to make fries, and there's like a, a right and a wrong way to do it. I actually, um, it, I mean, this isn't really like any reason to boast, but I went to a tri-state regional competition for French fries when I was 16. <laughs> I have a one list like cool jacket. I got married, my wife made me throw it away, but it was, uh, <laughs> and I can't find any pictures to prove it, but I did. And the reason why is because you know you can coat uh, fries too much. You can uh, not coat them at all. You can you know the fries have to be the right crispness and all these things. But what is it that makes them the best when they are appropriately seasoned? When they have the right amount that makes them uh, desirous and tasteful. And this is how our speech should be when it comes to the gospel. When it comes to uh, unbelievers, we can't just like coat it to make it coarse and and, and disgusting, but rather in a way that is appetizing. And so what, is it, what does it mean to be, uh, have salty gospel speech? Well, here's just a few ideas that I threw on the uh, screen for us here as we think about it. Uh, we're just speaking openly. You can write these down. You can take a picture of it with it. But just uh, with coworkers, with unbelievers, as uh, you speak openly about what you're reading in the Bible and how it's shaping you. You're just uh, reading God's Word, and you know what? Like, I was reading this. I've been chewing on this. What do you think about these things? may not have an answer for you, but it will add value and meaning to their life as you're speaking about the, uh, what you did over the weekend, tomorrow morning, a gospel opportunity. Let's pray for one another. As a co-worker might ask, what did you do this weekend? Speak about your church involvement, how it was a blessing to you. You got to serve this, or you had uh, this, this child in this way as you're serving in uh, kids' ministry. You heard this thing, and you sang this song in the service that was a real blessing to you. You had this conversation. You went out to eat after, uh, after church and got to know this family. Let's just win some speech. They'll begin to see what, how, it's, uh, how it's affecting your life as you just speak honorably about others. Spirit of the ages, to speak dishonorably, especially about your spouse or your kids or how they're a nuisance or they're frustrating you, to speak dishonorably about friends and co-workers and mother-in-laws or whatever it might be. Our speech seasoned with salt as we speak honorably about others or as we just speak hopefully. We speak hopefully about personal challenges or world affairs, things that are going on, the project that's at work or in class that, you're, uh, that, that is troubling you. As you speak hopefully and dependently upon the Lord as things are happening in the world in those major news events, another shooting, as despicable, horrific things happen in our world. Show them how we lament with hope, taking them as an opportunity to share about the good news of Jesus Christ who is our only hope. Not minimizing it by any means, but bringing hope to the situation. See, this is how we just add some salt to the, and some flavor that we enhance the conversation and we are winsome then in our witness. And I think if we employ these means here, our, our unafraid witness will just like ratchet up several things. So we have those caricatures in our mind about what that means, right? So, okay, I've got to be devoted to uh, uh, unafraid witness. I, gotta, I guess I'm going to have to go down on the street corner with a sign and start... Pr- try this. Just try this this week. And see what opportunities, what doors God opens for you to talk about Christ. That you may answer people as you ought. 
see our speech, our witnesses to be gracious and salty, but also informed, understanding and knowledgeable about the faith, right? Like, look at that last little phrase there. So that you may know how you ought to answer each person. What does that mean? That we all have to enroll in a master's degree in apologetics, right? No. But walking in wisdom. I'm not saying we shouldn't. If you want to get a degree in apologetics, that's fine. But what he's not here saying is that then as Christians, we need to be know-it-alls. So you, this is not a, a, a charge for us to uh, be uh, understanding and, and, and gearing ourselves up so we can win every argument that an unbeliever might make. I'll tell you what, being a know-it-all, that's like the ma- one of the most massive turnoffs in a conversation for those. But it, what it does mean here is that we're not afraid to engage in conversations. We're not afraid to, to just bring up the, uh, uh, the Lord. We're not afraid to answer just real-life questions about life and Jesus and the Bible. And it's, you know, it's less of knowing how to answer every question. And, and, or it's more of that and less of answering every question. Let me just say that again. See, this is, it's knowing how to answer, not uh, knowing all the answers. See, there's a massive difference. That's key here. It's key for us to know just how, because sometimes people may ask real-life questions as you're getting to the, the, the crux of the situation here. There may be questions that you have no idea about. Our pride, we're like, oh, I need to have an answer for that. The best thing, the most winsome answer that you may be able to give is just, hey, that's a fantastic question. I don't honestly know. I've never, I've, I've never thought about that. But I would love to study it with you because I believe that there is an answer and I believe God has an answer for us. And so let's study that together. Let's, let's, let's think on it together. And it is this type of speech that is winsome. It is this that is unafraid, especially in our polemic age of hate and vitriol. In the age in which we live, like our world expects to engage in a conversation that's filled with just arguing and anger and, and, and attack. And yet this type of gracious, salty, informed uh, speech just throws people off. This type of humility that is not characteristic of our age, God opens the door like that. Even in the crass, hardened rough places where you may work where jokes and put-downs and things are the norm. See, no, we as believers, as friends of Christ, those transform. We are set apart, distinct in how we communicate with people, even in our places of conviction. That we are people of convictional kindness. And these things open up doors for the gospel and makes us wise in the midst of societal foolishness. See, notice what's not included in these verses here. Nothing is included here like, and if we do these things, then everybody will be saved. But the emphasis on the transformation that happens in our heart as we're devoted to these things, as we're praying in these ways, as God leads us into obedience, as we as people who are radically impacted by the greatness of God that seasons the way we communicate, as we are over and over saying, God is great. God is great, and I am poor and needy to this unbelieving world, living like Christ did. Christ, who was himself praying this way right now, praying for us. Christ, who himself was uh, full of wisdom, grace, and truth as the source of them. And it's his example, his instructions that lead us in this. A life devoted, putting these things into practice, which is really what we're going to do now. We see the priority of it. We see how. 
we are to pray, how we are to share the gospel. And so what I want us to do, just as we close in our service today, is actually put it into practice. We're going to take some more time to just pray this way, praying on our own, praying with the people that we came with, our family or friends that we're sitting next to. But we want to just pray now in this way, continually, st- continuing steadfastly in it, praying that God will open up doors. You've heard it. You ready to do it now? Let's pray. Bow your heads. I'm going to lead us in this. We're just going to take the first uh, moment to pray on our own. The worship team is going to come up. And, uh, and then after, we'll uh, just follow the instructions here and let's pray together. Father in heaven, we love you. We love your word. We love the instructions that you've given us here. And so we just uh, begin here now. By, we know our own circumstances. But before we pray for this, God, we want to just pray for our own hearts. And so, church, just take a moment to pray for a greater devotion to prayer, a greater devotion to meeting with Christ. Take this moment just to pray and ask God to do that in your heart, to apply these things right now. Father, we do acknowledge that uh, you have to do this work in our lives. Would you cultivate us in it? Would you uh, make us love you more? Would you help us to delight to spend time with you? Lord, we also just uh, acknowledge our circumstances, where you've put us. And so right now, just as the word has instructed us, we're going to pray, God, would you open up doors in these opportunities or with these people? So church, take just a, a moment. You know your life. Would you ask God even now to give you opportunity to open a door? Maybe it's in your family. Maybe it's in your workplace, your classroom, your neighborhood. But ask God to open up some doors. You can pray right now. You can pray out loud. You can pray quietly. Let's pray to this end, even now. Help us all. Do you give us opportunities and then give us the right kind of speech to make the gospel clear? Or do you have to do the work to transform the hearts, but we want to be your messengers, and so help us in that. We all know people, or do you know them as well? And so we want to just pray for them by name even now those that are apart from you maybe just to pray specifically god give me an opportunity with this person open up a door for a gospel with this person so church would you pray for that person and that opportunity right
Father, we would ask out of the great outpouring of your mercy and your love that you would save these names, people that uh, are on our hearts, the people that you have put in our life. Give us opportunity. Use us. If not us, someone, Lord. Declare this mystery. Do that, God. Lord, your word also instructs us to pray for one another in this way. Paul's asking that they would pray. The Colossian church would pray for him. We want to pray in this same way. So church, with the person you came with, their family there, would you just uh, pray for them? You likely know their circumstances already, or you can just pray, uh, you know, kind of uh, high-level generic prayers. But pray for the person you're uh, sitting next to or came with this morning. Pray that God would open up doors in their life as well. Add your prayers. Pray out loud. I'll close this in just a moment. Father, even in our asking, it's our believing. Believing that you are who you say you are, that you are a good God, that you are about the work of uh, saving the lost. You're about the work of maturing the saved and multiplying the matured, and we believe that, Lord. So mature us in our devotion to prayer, mature us in our devotion to living out and speaking the gospel. Save many. Uh, to save many, use us. We want our life to count, God. Not for our sake, not for our own accolades, but all for yours, Christ. That all praise and honor and glory might be yours. So we devote, are devoted to it. We're steadfast in it, God. So that we would make the best use of the time. Hear our prayers, God, come through. Continue your work in us, even as we sing now. We tell you that you are awesome. We pray these things in Christ's name.